The opinions expressed on questions you didn't ask are those of the individual participants and do not reflect those of their respective employers and institutions. Welcome back to Questions You Didn't Ask in the series titled In the Shadows, Navigating Homelessness, Veterans, and Incarceration with our guests, Mr. Eric Hargrave, Mr. Dennis Fonteroy, and Dr. Benjamin Bell. Let's get back into the conversation. So what I want to do is turn to a little bit more of a hard-hitting question. So I'm going to start, I'm going to start a little slow and then get a little heavy. So the question that I have is, what policies are in place that make it difficult for formerly incarcerated people to get and maintain quality and affordable housing? Can you tell our audience about that? Well, part of it is they, in some places, they're not able to enter into a contract. And so they need to find somebody that will sign for them. And they'll be living in a place that their name is not even on the dotted line. Mm hmm because they're a felon. And then it depends on why they went to prison. If it's a violent crime in Iowa, they have a habit of not letting people sign contracts for five to seven years if it was violent. But if they stole a million dollars, that's different. Well, mm -hmm. a lot of people, African-American males, it was a violent crime. It was against their own people. Mm -hmm. But the other folks, the dominant culture has made it so that they they want rent to them. And so now they're trying to figure out somebody that they can kind of play a little game with and see if they can get them to sign. Maybe my parents, maybe I may have already messed up my relationship with my brothers and my sisters and my uncles and my auntie and them before I went in prison. They're like, oh no, no, I'm not doing it. So then they got to go find some sweetie pie, forgive the language, or somebody that they can cajole into doing this. And it's like, this is not feasible. Why can't we give them a chance? Say, we're going to give you 6, 12, 18 months and renew every so often and give them a chance. Because what they have found out is people that they allow to enter in the contracts that have been in prison, they're the ones that keep their jobs. Mm. They're the ones that pay their bills. Mm -hmm. Because they have a PO looking over them. They have somebody who says, hey, you, got, you have one foot in the Department of Corrections. You have one foot in the street, depending on your decision. The other foot's going to go out into the street or the other foot's going to go back into the system. Those people normally maintain employment and stay out of trouble. 78% of the people that we serve don't reoffend if they're part mm -hmm. of our program. They just need a chance. Again, you know, when you have these situations that they have not been proactively thought out and thought through, and even taking the data that Dr. Bell shared with us, even the results haven't changed those policies to be able to change the way we increase the number of productive citizens that these felons are. And even to take it a step further, not just violent criminals, but, you know, sex offenders. If a black man is dating a, a young white girl and they mm -hmm. get busted, oh, it's on. He's stuck, you know, and it could be a consensual thing. But because of everything that's going on, it's just a really high bar for them to even get back to square one mm -hmm. without being under the control of the society, of the system, or the policies that, that are out there. So consequently for us, 
you know, we've got to continue to share with these younger guys. Look, watch your decision-making. Watch who you hang with. Watch how you live life. So we're dealing with life from a whole different level of how do people see me? How do I make mm-hmm. the decision? How do I keep clear? Do I walk around in a shirt and tie and make sure I act very docile so that mm-hmm. I don't offend anybody, so that nobody you know, feels threatened by my mere existence? Mm-hmm. Because that's how most of the males are growing up. And that right. goes back to even, I have to confess myself, because even in mentoring these third and fourth grade boys or, or even in our programs, and I share with them that if they get in trouble in school in the third and fourth grade, if, if they're on truancy or, or if they sit out or they're on an IEP, they're building a jail cell for them. Now, I know that that's the truth. Mm-hmm. I know that the prison system is designed based upon the data that is coming through our schools at that age. Mm-hmm. But the key is, is that why should I have to tell them young cats that and for them to have to process that and, and, and go through life with that on them? Mm-hmm. I really got to watch myself. I got to be I got to be careful. I got to be scared instead of just, OK, I'm just going to be the best that I'm going to be. I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to try to do that. And I have to confess. I, and it just came to me right then that I might be prop- part of the problem in sharing that with them. But I know I did it because that's the reality. I don't mm-hmm. want a third or fourth grader to just act out or for whatever reason. He may be hungry because he didn't have any breakfast in the morning. Mm-hmm. So he can't concentrate in school. And if he takes somebody's, you know, pastry or Danish or lunch and they put him out in the hallway and they, they it could be it could have been just because he didn't have no food. And they label or, him a bully. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we've got this anti bullying campaign and there no, it goes. Exactly. So which which affects who disproportionately? Mm-hmm. Those kids who need more or who mm-hmm. aren't getting the, the, the natural things that, that most kids get, a roof it's over nurture. their head, a secure, where am I waking up mm-hmm. today? Who am I going home to today? Is something going to happen to me on the way home? That's why we continue to try to share with them how important it is to learn how to grow, to learn how to read, to learn how to look at what families should be like, to learn that you have value. You don't have to be bullied. Don't, people who bully, you know, aren't sure of themselves because they, mm. if they were sure of themselves, they wouldn't have to demonstrate some type of a physical, you know, dominance over somebody or verbal dominance. So in trying to do that, it's really difficult for these kids growing up to carry the weight that we know that they're going to be under. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, as far as the policies and things like that, we really have uh, a lot to change, you know, because it does, it's going to continue to make it difficult for these guys and gals who end up incarcerated to come out and lead a peaceful, consistent, committed life to themselves and, and their families. Yes, it's, well, a, it's a lot of cultural bias, a lot of cultural bias after you're labeled a certain thing that Dennis is talking to. Even things like the IEP program you talked about, all, all of these programs that kind of put you in a box and no matter what room you go in, you're looked at a certain way and dealing with people coming out of incarceration. We know that once they put down their felon or that they've had this time, that someone's going to dig a little deeper. They're going to try and figure out, are they really this type of person or they label them just 
flat seeing it on the surface that they're this type of person. I remember transitioning from the Marine Corps and having PTSD as a part of how people saw me, you know, that I suffer from this condition. But it put immediately a stigma on how people addressed me when I went to the hospital or they read the file and they say, okay, we need to be careful around this guy. This guy may do this. This guy may do that. So just imagine, you know, a guy with something on their record where they say, hey, he had a battery assault on a minor or, you know, because he got the police called on him by his 13 year old kid, you know, from getting whooping. You know, you don't know what is really behind those titles that are labeled on us that really keep society from helping us because it, it, it immediately, and I'm not just talking about people of one color or the other, because I've been discriminated against by my own people just as much as I have from mm-hmm. other races. So it, it's that stigma that's that, that comes along with these titles that builds these barriers in the community and it builds the, those barriers in cultures that keep this pocket of people. And people benefit off of this. They need that population of people in order for their businesses to thrive. So some of them like that cycle that these people are in. They need to keep them in these cycles in order for their pockets to stay filled. And and that just goes from looking at it from a logistical standpoint, a a financial analysis of how these businesses are ran or how these so-called social, you know, help organizations, they're set up to thrive off the people that are in need and they want to keep them there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that we used to talk about in Durham, North Carolina is the activists, the community rooted activists would say is that our job is to work ourselves out of a job. And the idea there is that as a nonprofit organization, you're there to fix a problem, address a problem and do it so well that there's no need for your service any longer, that people are able to sustain themselves without you. And that if that is not your goal, then you are actually just a part of sustaining the problem and the system and not about fixing. One of the other things that I just wanted to articulate in response to what has been shared so far, which has been really powerful, is just to kind of do a little level set for my audience in regard to what is an IEP. IEP stands for Individualized Education Program, and it's purpose is to lay out the special education instruction supports and services that for students that have disabilities and you know on my show we've talked about parenting ch- children with disabilities talked about disability justice we've talked about biases around this and so i just bring this up again so that people understand how far reaching this is we rec- I recognize as the host the importance of our children getting all of the supports and services and therapies that they need to overcome and be able to learn and grow and contribute to society. IEPs help with that. Along that process, though, we still have issues around institutionalized racism and white supremacy that can create negative outcomes for our Black students, our Black and Brown students who have IEPs and how far reaching that is in their life if they are not surrounded by community supports that will help shield them 
from those barriers and deterrence. The other thing that I want to speak on is in regard to what you share, Eric, you made a, a point, a concerted effort to make the point, and I think rightfully so, that not all of the racism that you've experienced or discrimination that you've experienced have been by the hands of white people. In fact, some of the most hurtful experiences are coming from a place of internalized racism and racial bias by Black people toward Black people. And we have to recognize that that is a place of community healing that we have to invest in. Uh, and I think is 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 actually an active part of a lot of uh, what I see, at least on my social media, where folks are really starting to call out institutionalized racism, white supremacy, and the harms and effects that it has when we ourselves act out of that mindset and those values toward each other. So I appreciate you sharing, you know, those examples, especially as it relates to, you know, your experience in the military and, and having certain labels, you know, in regard to your own health profile. And so just to kind of feed off of that, what are some key pathways that leads veterans? You know, we, you know, we have this weird relationship with veterans in this country, right? Idealistically, we hold them up and elevate them as they should be, as people who have sacrificed their life in order to make sure that us as a country is safe and protected, both domestically and internationally. Veterans are a part of one of the most elite military forces our U.S. Army in the world. So we hold them up um, in such a way, but there seems to be some key pathways that can lead veterans to being incarcerated or involved in the justice system. Can you talk about how we go from that to these types of scenarios and situations? De definitely. Uh, and being someone that was on the verge of homelessness, being someone that was separated from what I knew, my normalcy was kind of broken up after transitioning from the Marine Corps. You are part of an institution, uh, right? And that institution holds you to a certain standard. And it resonates through not only the military members, but also to the children. Because you have families who stay on these bases that are affected by this high level of discipline that this society has. Because you go on a military base or go into military housing, and you don't see graffiti on the walls. You don't see people littering. You don't see people getting robbed. You don't see a lot of the things that you would see outside of the base. Mm. Um, so to get used to this lifestyle of seeing life with people who more often than not do the right thing. I'm not saying there's no crime. I was a sexual victim advocate as well while I was in, in the Marine Corps. So I know there's crime. I I was substance abuse counsel. I know there's substance abuse. I know that there's drug abuse. We have some of the big, biggest drug users through prescription medicine that mm. I've ever seen. But the majority, the lifestyle is not out of order. Mm -hmm. We had a thing on, on Marine Corps base. You didn't walk in the grass. You walked on the sidewalk. <laughs> but it's a simple rule that that showed that you cared about how things looked around there that you cared about people not speeding. You cared, you know, the, the speed limit on base is a lot less than it is outside the base. And, you know, so many infractions, you lose your driving privileges. There's no backwards to it. So it's just being a community that's that's held to a certain standard 
And this even draws into people that are incarcerated. They're institutionalized. They're given, you know, when they go to the bathroom, uh, or not when they go to the bathroom, but when they are able to go out. I worked in the New Orleans jails uh, for a little while in collaboration with the state. Uh, so we, we worked inside of the jails because a lot of the guards were from there. And, you know, a lot of illegal things were going on because of that, you know, that might be their cousin that's in there, their brother or whatnot. Um, so they brought the military in part time to kind of quell some of those issues. And working in there, they're institutionalized. They 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 have a schedule. They have opportunity to educate themselves. They have opportunity to work out every day on their physical health. And they're separated from the craziness of being on the internet all day. The craziness and drama that they may have been a part of in their community where they were raised that brought them to jail. Um, so it's a separation from this society to a structured society. And once you get used to that structured society and go back out here, it's it's like, why are people acting like this? Why don't they do their job like they're supposed to do? Why are people working in the restaurant with no customer service skills? And and, and what what's wrong with this world? It's a shock. It, it is a shock. And trying to get back to, okay, if you see everything else is wrong around you, you're probably the person that needs to fix it. Mm. So I think that that mental shock of not having the support that you would have on a base or having the, the close proximity to support that you have in jail, you have doctors, you have all of these things uh, available and, and people may see it not as as common, but but I see it because I, I know people that have went into the jail because they just didn't respond correctly to this mm. thing. Oh, someone dealing with mental issues or, or, or being not being able to stop a response or how you respond to something, being upset about something and responding to someone getting your order wrong or not caring about the service they're providing. It angers a military mm-hmm. person. You, you'll hear mil- many military people talk about how frustrated they get and how anxious they get behind someone not doing their job. Just do what you're supposed to do. So a lot of those factors lead into a lot of anger, a lot of uh, pent down emotions uh, that come out in things that make them commit these crimes or, or, you know, or go in these different sets of things that ruin their lives. Do you all see any other similarities? But I, li- I like the way that you talked about the similarities between the lived experiences of people who are formerly incarcerated and veterans that leads to or perpetuates homelessness. What are some of the the similarities between these two populations? So let me let me just kind of share this briefly because again, as he said before, Dr. Bell indicated, I didn't go into the military. Mm-hmm. I am a soldier in the army of the Lord now, and I live with my <laughs> dad and kids. So I just want to let that out. But what I heard, and we've talked about this before, the the environment that they are coming out of. Mm-hmm. the box. And we have a saying in our dad's program, men are like waffles, women are like spaghetti, right? Do you, okay. you all understand? So we compartmentalize. Okay. We compartmentalize. Women, you know, everything affects everything else. You know, if you pull a strand of spaghetti out, it affects the whole pile. But as far as men go, we compartmentalize. So right now, you know, when we talk about where men or males come out of a different box 
and they go into incarceration where they're everything is structured according to that institution. Same way with the military. If that institution is a certain way and they are released from that or they're removed from that, then in, inherently they still have that in their mind. And so when things are different or they are challenged with having to deal with another environment, then their coping skills mm-hmm. or their history you know, will come into play as uh, to, to determine whether or not they're able or willing to cope with that. If somebody gives a gives a veteran a over easy egg versus an over medium egg, and that's an issue that that person wants it just like he's always gotten it from where he come from, mm-hmm. then, and he don't know how to cope with that, he doesn't have the the skills to communicate or the patience, you know, or the understanding that that cook or the waitress, you know, may have taken a little bit longer, blah, blah, blah. He may not have that. And that Mm -hmm. causes him to react in an adverse way. Then that causes an issue. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that I look at relative to what you're, you're, you're saying is our ability to change the mindset. And I'm thankful to Eric that he introduced me to, to mindfulness. Of course, we call it prayer and meditation, you know, just go to the altar, just seek God, you know what I mean? <laughs> or as our old people would say, just go sit down somewhere, it'll pass, you know. Mm. But in, in, in that context, uh, learning to look inside and see those different ways that we can change or see or receive or give which will allow us to move past that incident into, well, you know, maybe I'll just ask him, can you, can you take this and do it? You know, this is the way I really like it. I'll, I'll wait a few moments. Can you go ahead and ask the cook to do a little something extra on that? And I appreciate you. And then just, you know, exercise that restraint. Mm-hmm. You know, so those areas that we can change how we are internally, Mm-hmm. And how we can teach those guys and gals that are coming out of the military or out of incarceration, you know, that will help them in that day to day because all we have is right now. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody just has right now. Yes, you know, we have the afternoon to come, blah, blah, blah. But the decisions that we make right now are what's going to allow us to have a good day, keep a good mm-hmm. day, or not. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So to me, that's that's how we can change those mindsets and situations so that they don't have to end up back where they were. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yes, 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 it does. Because, you know, one of the things that we do in public health is we study what's called the social ecological model. When we're thinking about how do you build interventions? How do you build strategies to prevent either primary prevention, meaning that they never, ever had this type of experience and we don't want them to or tertiary where it's like they've had this experience we don't want them to go back again or make it worse is we think about the individual just like you guys have you've talked about the type of work that you do to strengthen the individual internally and how then that influences their interpersonal relationships which is another layer of this model and and that is in relation to their 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 spouses, their children, you know, the way that they interact at the restaurant, you know, mm-hmm. um, those interpersonal relationships. How does that internal work help to influence those interpersonal relationships? And then how do they then 
become empowered to engage in organizations, work with organizations on a bigger scale to help to see change in their lives? What organizations are they interacting with and engaging with that allow them to either receive resources or to give back to the community in a way that promotes health and well-being? And then finally, how well, not finally, but next, how that then influences the community at large that they are a part of as an individual who has interpersonal relationships and interfaces with organizations, how does that all improve community health for the overall community? And then how are those policies, right, at the, at the macro level, either helping or harming the community, helping or harming organizations, helping or harming interpersonal relationships and the individual? I think that we've talked on policies and touched on each one of those areas. You know, we've talked about how there are certain policies around housing, especially for formerly incarcerated people, that force them into interpersonal relationships that they might not otherwise have just so that they have somebody to sign on a dotted line. Mm-hmm. Right. So so this is a very interesting and layered conversation as it relates to these special populations, if you will. And, you know, one of the things that I am also thinking about as I'm reflecting on, you know, my work, working with people who were infected with HIV, who were incarcerated and some and my colleagues and I at UNC and the Center for AIDS Research, we did a lot of work to help understand that transition process and how we could best partner with the prisons and with community organizations and healthcare clinics, healthcare providers in particular, to make sure that those folks, when they before they left prison, that they understood and they were walked through the process of how to make sure that they had a plan in place, goals in place that would allow them to maintain their health and not receive that shock or as much of a shock as what you all talked about. And so we were really wanting to keep people connected in this case to their health care so that their viral load wouldn't then explode or their health wouldn't then decline dramatically, but that they actually had access to their medication. That meant that they had Medicaid. That meant that they had a doctor that they knew they could go to. That meant that they had transportation to get there and that there were people helping them problem solve and create those roadmaps. And a lot of what we used is what was mentioned before is motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. Speaking to the person, you know, nothing about them without them. What are their values? What is important to them? And then allowing those values to show up and be represented in how they make decisions and how they problem solve and how they connect from one place and accomplishing what they need to by getting to the next. So, you know, whether you're talking about housing, I think a lot of these strategies can be adapted and implement it, you know, to address a number of different issues. But I think one of the main things that you talked about is how there has to be a heart, a person there who truly cares about the person, who truly relates and leans in and says, I'm here for you with all of your warts, all of your imperfections, all of your labels, and and says, I too come with labels and warts and imperfections, and we are in this together to not just focus on that, but to talk about all the, the, the gifts that we have, the assets that we have, 
who it is that we are, what we can bring to the table and not constantly be thinking about or being hyper vigilant, right? About all these negative things that, that could be happening to us or to those that we care about. I mean, I'm very much concerned about the mental health, especially of black men in regard to that struggle of being forced in this society to be hyper vigilant. And, and that's what you guys talked about was the stress and, and the knowledge and that, and that balancing act of like, do I tell this third grader, right? Who's what, yeah. nine years old, eight years old about how their, their actions today could reverberate throughout their life and set them on a course that they might not even be aware of, mm -hmm. you know, do you share that or do you keep it to yourself? And where, where is the balance? How do you do that effectively? You know, I was just kind of reflecting and wrapping my brain around all that and seeing those beautiful connections in regard to how we work and what we want to uplift for our audience to be thinking about. And, and so with that in, in mind, what would you say are efforts in place? And we've talked about this. I really like to talk about solutions and you guys have been very solution oriented. I love that. What efforts are in place to remedy and eliminate barriers to quality, affordable, sustaining housing for veterans and people who have been incarcerated? Are there well, any that you'd like to lift up? Yes. So one of the, the model of Hargrave Innovative Solutions is upholding the golden rule. And being able to see myself, for Dennis to be able to see himself in the people that we're serving is the key. So what would I do? What? How can I, if I was the guy who was homeless, if I was the guy that was dealing with substance abuse, if I was that guy that was coming out of incarceration, looking at those barriers, what I call doing a gap analysis and actually applying something to break down that barrier. So like Dad's Care too, that's an organization that went to the state about shared parenting and put together a campaign to change the laws associated with how how that's dealt with people that are on child support, people that have to do visitation for their kids that they've been raising for umpteen years. You know, changing that dynamic of how how legislation looks and how those things can be changed. Those things can be changed, but it's all about being able to see ourselves in the situation, not to look down on anybody in any situation. Because like you said, we got warts and, and scars too, that we got to this point and we're helping people because we know exactly what it's like to be on the other side of the counter. We know exactly what it's like not to have somewhere to sleep tonight. Mm. So to get turned down on numerous jobs because mm -hmm. you put something down on an application. Or, or, or turned away because of the color of your skin or because you're a male. I remember, you know, it, it, it's been many a times, you know, dealing with law enforcement that I've had some of those barriers too, even though I was a Marine, you know, some, some things just, you know, that culture don't care what, <laughs> what, 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 who you, where you serve, but being able to see ourselves in the situation, applying our skills, other people's skills in the network to build the solution from a ground standpoint. And I like when Dennis said, when you introduced them, you know, hello from the field, you know, because it takes us from a ground level to see the issues for us to create the solutions. So my response uh, to the solutions that we constantly thank, thank God for giving us solutions and working within that, to constantly look, look at that, 
to look for that. And that being proactive, thinking about uh, what the best case scenario should be. And we all grow up in a world that isn't perfect because our world isn't perfect. But to understand what that looks like for me can be different. You know, it's different for everybody. But the basic resources that people need, housing, food, clothing, etc., is is one of those things that we can all compile. Right now, we're working with DCF uh, to put all of our resources, agencies, you know, it's kind of like a united way type mm-hmm. of uh, an effort, but more concise, because there's a lot of organizations in our neighborhoods that are functioning, violence, interruption, mothers against drunk driving, et cetera, et cetera, that aren't out there on these major things. So compiling that, the churches, what do the churches have available so that in each neighborhood they can go here or go there or expect this, you know, to to be available to them. So we're working on those more in-depth resource books, manuals, breaking them down so that we can give out to the people out there that are on the streets, but not just give it to them, but show them how to utilize it, not making it so extensive or so complicated that they can't understand it, but to be able to deal with what it is that they need, building the relationship with the people you need to build a relationship with, what that looks like, how to communicate their needs. You know what I mean? And, you know, back in, again, I'm going back in the day, you know, mm-hmm. when we talk about how the, the, the warts and things that we have, you know what our answer was? Put a cold rag and some Vaseline on it. <laughs> well, the thing is... <laughs> or some tussing. Some tussing. I was going to go there, but, I, you know... <laughs> <laughs> You be good. Right. right. But the key, the key is, to, is to have that clear, concise solution. Mm-hmm. You know, so I got love for you. Let's sit down and see what you really need. Let's see, let's see what that cut is really. When you know, did you hit your head? Did you fall down? Why did you do that? Are you just prone to that? Blah blah blah. So building those relationships, mm-hmm. developing those resource books, you know, and not just the, the ones that are close to us. But those ones, wherever they can, that they can use elsewhere, mm-hmm. and so uh, I think that's those resource manuals and integrating. And I'm just a church man. I'm just God's man, basically. Uh, I want what God has for us to be part of what those decisions, you know, uh, that you can access. Mm-hmm. You can access somebody to talk to in your local church or to one of those counseling sessions. You can get therapy. You can, you can build that and find the answers that you need uh, mm-hmm. as a result. Thank you for listening to the new series of Questions You Didn't Ask. Join me, your host, Naisha Frey, and my guest, Mr. Eric Hargrave, Mr. Dennis Fontelroy, and Dr. Benjamin Bell. Next week, as our conversation, In the Shadows, Navigating Homelessness, Veterans, and Incarceration continues.